This is a Faith FM podcast. You're listening to The Faith Experiment with Robbie Bergen, right across Australia, right here on Faith FM. Hello and thanks for joining me. I'm Robbie Bergen and you are listening to The Faith Experiment right here on Faith FM Radio right across Australia. This is a brand new show that aims to get you not only thinking about faith, but to experiment with faith. Welcome to episode number one of The Faith Experiment. I'm so thankful to Faith FM for giving me a platform to present this new podcast. And I'm grateful to you, the listener. Thank you for tuning in wherever you are today. And I'm looking forward to connecting and hearing from you as we journey together in this experiment of faith. In fact, I'd love to start to get to know you right now from episode number one. I'd love to know where you're listening from today. If you could send me a text on 04888-45311, that's 04888-45311, or send me an email at robbie at faithfm.com.au and tell me where you're listening to The Faith Experiment from. Where in Australia are you or what part of the world are you tuning in from? I would love to hear from you. Well, The Faith Experiment, what is it? Well, The Faith Experiment is going to be sort of an autobiography of my personal experiment with faith. You see, there was a point in my life when faith was insignificant. It had no part in my life at all. In fact, I considered myself to be an atheist for a good part of my adult life. But as you shall discover, that all changed and is still changing. So we're going to start the faith experiment by going back and reflecting upon its impact in my life. And then, as we journey together, we're going to delve into more contemporary issues of faith and how do we apply faith to our lives today? How do we experiment with it? Well, as I said, this is episode number one, and I'm going to call this episode Ground Zero. And I'm calling that for a number of reasons. The term Ground Zero is generally used to describe the epicenter of something. It's the point where everything starts. And so, obviously, this being episode number one of this new podcast, it made good sense to call this Ground Zero, the episode that starts everything, where it all begins from. But the second reason I've chosen the title Ground Zero is because the reality is my faith experiment began with Ground Zero. Yes, the one that most of you are probably immediately thinking of when you hear Ground Zero. Ground Zero, the one that's found right there in the heart of New York City. You see, my experiment with faith begins with one of the most important and horrifying stories from the start of this century. My journey with faith began with the events of September 11, 2001. Just this past week, we saw the 19th anniversary of the attacks of September 11, 2001. And it seems that as time goes on, it seems that fewer and fewer people remember the gravity of those events. But you know, there are a few dates in human history that can be pinpointed as the moment when an entire civilization changes, or the point in history in which the world is forever shifted. But unanimously, all look 
to those events of September 11, 2001 as the moment that the world changed forever. We understand that a plane has crashed into the World Trade Center. We don't know anything more than that. We don't know if it was a commercial aircraft. We don't know if it was a private aircraft. Another one just hit the building. Wow. I literally, I was waiting at table and I literally saw a, it seemed to be like a small plane. American 11, are you trying to call? It's 8.54 right now, Stuart. Can you tell me when this happened exactly? I would have to say about 10 minutes ago. I heard first an explosion. Unconfirmed report that a plane has crashed into one of the towers there. We are efforting more information on this subject. And all of a sudden, stuff just started falling, like bricks and paper and everything. We can't see a second plane in the picture. There we see the explosion. Probably four to eight floors. Uh, I don't know which tower it is. So as we get started here, I want to take you back to those events. I want you to remember those moments. And to do that, I want to put you in the shoes of someone who was there, someone who can give us a first-hand account of what took place in those initial hours of the day that changed the world. I want to introduce to you photojournalist David Hanshart. He was there in New York City on the morning of September 11. 2001. And this is his story. So I was standing in front of the South Tower and heard this loud noise that sounded like a hundred freight trains riding down the rails. And looked up and saw that the South Tower was starting to collapse in slow motion. Instinctively I brought a camera up to my eye. Voice in the back of my head said, run. I, I landed about half a block further away from the buildings than I started, but somehow managed to hold on to two cameras that were around my shoulders. And about 90 frames, 90 photographs that I had taken in the previous 40 minutes. It was a beautiful, beautiful morning until 8.48 a.m. All of a sudden the police radio started to scream. A plane has hit the World Trade Center, the building's on fire, so this big red fire truck. So I started following them uh, these are firefighters that I've covered for years, and they're waving to me. There were 11 firefighters on Rescue One that morning. All 11 of them died on September 11th. They were in their own hearse going to their own funerals. They just didn't realize it yet. After the first plane had already hit, there were a massive amount of debris on the street. There were cars burning, just kept on taking pictures, and heard a loud noise that seemed to come from all over, but from nowhere in particular. I was standing in front of the South Tower when it got hit and it just blew out in a plume of smoke and flame and it was um, highlighted by that beautiful blue sky. What I had initially thought was an accident all of a sudden became an intentional act of hostility. Realized I was on a very big story, looking up and seeing uh, parts of the building fall down, seeing glass falling down seeing flames and then seeing people starting to fall down and capturing New Yorkers, helping other New Yorkers. Photographs of people running with serving trays over their heads that they had grabbed at the Marriott Hotel to protect themselves from the falling debris. A woman whose high heels were in her hands, she was running barefoot through the broken glass and pieces of metal. Uh, a parks police officer helping a severely burned woman. 
turned and I ran and as I was running I got picked up by a wave, got picked up and tossed. Wound up buried under a bunch of debris. My mouth was clogged with dirt and ash and pulverized powdered parts of the building. You know, my leg was shattered. I had burns, I had cuts, I had damaged the other leg, inhalation injuries. And I thought I was going to die by myself face down in the gutter of New York City streets. When I heard a voice um, that said to me, don't worry, brother, we'll get you out. A bunch of firefighters from Engine 217 in Brooklyn pulled the debris off of me, dug with their hands and tools, whatever was on top of me, and got me out from underneath the, uh, the pile. Another couple of rescuers, Jeff Porkowski and Phil McArdle, picked me up, carried me back towards Battery Park City, and put me on the floor of a delicatessen. There were people praying, there were people crying, there were people silent, all just wanting to survive, though. When the dust cleared from the second collapse, Jim Keller and Charlie Wells and a third rescuer appears to be a firefighter, he's not wearing a helmet, and um, to this day we haven't been able to find him, haven't been able to identify who another one of my guardian angels was that morning. There are not words or actions that I can pass on that would adequately say thank you to the people who saved my life that day. The photographers who took pictures on September 11th, 2001, weren't taking photos for the next day's paper where we, we were recording history forever. That was the incredible eyewitness account of photojournalist David Hanschat, who was there on the morning of September 11, 2001. And as I mentioned before, this is episode one of the Faith Experiment, and I'm calling it Ground Zero. September 11 is the day that many say changed the world as we know it. But for me personally, September 11, 2001 was the day that changed my world. Even though I was living in Brisbane, Australia, and had nothing to do with New York City, I didn't know anybody who tragically lost their lives in those events. I hadn't even been to the United States yet. But I can point to September 11, 2001 as the day that changed my world. Now we're going to take a short break, but but when we come back, I'm going to share with you my September 11 story. We'll be right back after this with The Faith Experiment. You're listening to The Faith Experiment with Robbie Bergen. Right across Australia, right here on Faith FM. Connect with us via text message on 04888-45311. That's 04888-45311. Or send an email to robbie at faithfm.com.au. Every moment before I break my need, I 
Robbie Bergen, right across Australia, right here on Faith FM. Listen live or listen later. Get the Faith FM app from your app store today. Welcome back to the Faith Experiment. I'm Robbie Bergen, and this is episode number one of the Faith Experiment. And we're looking at the impact of September 11, 2001. We just heard earlier from photojournalist David Hanshark on how he recounted that morning. Well, as I said earlier, 911 was my ground zero when it came to my experiment with faith. My story starts in Brisbane, Australia, about as far as you can get from New York City. I grew up 
most of my life in Brisbane. It was a great place, perfect weather all year round and the best fruit you can get. There's amazing beaches north and south of the city and there's the hinterland and the people are down to earth and just the vibe of the place. It's a fantastic place to live. Now, I grew up in a typical middle-class Australian home. We lived in the suburbs. Dad worked in sales, loved his land cruiser. Mum was a nurse. We camped on Stradbroke Island. We had barbecues on the beach for Christmas and New Year's Day. We watched the cricket on the weekends, followed the V8 supercars, and, of course, we supported the Brisbane Broncos. I had a younger sister and brother, and we're just your regular Australian family. I finished high school in the... 1990s and I started studying computer science at uni and right as the dot-com bubble began to grow. It was great. I was working for some of the largest companies in Australia designing IT systems and solving problems, writing code and getting paid extremely well. I loved the challenge of being given problems and having to come up with solutions. And by the end of the 90s, I was driving brand new cars. I'd traveled all over Asia and Europe. And by the end of the millennium, I was building my first house. Life was amazing. You know, friends would say to me that that I was born with a lucky gene. And although I, I know what they meant by that, and I agree that I did get some great opportunities, they also didn't see the time that I put into training and studying and learning. You know... I had sacrificed friendships, uh, birthday parties, pretty much anything that had come up that I saw as getting in the way of me working harder to get ahead. So I guess you could say that in a way I was fortunate, but it did definitely come at a cost, that's for sure. You see, I remember when I was in first year high school and all the kids were wearing their brand new Reebok pumps. Now, I'm sure that some of you listening probably have no idea what I'm talking about, but trust me, when you're in grade eight and all the boys have shoes that have to be pumped up, trust me, you want them too. So I remember going home and asking for these shoes. Now, my parents had money, but they also had this thing called debt. And so we didn't shop at the kinds of places where you buy Reebok pumps. And so I remember going to school with some Reebok clones or copy shoes. Well, as you can imagine, it was quite embarrassing to a year eight boy. And uh, it was then, in year eight, that I determined that no matter what it took, I was going to be rich. I was going to study hard, work hard, do whatever it took to get to the point where I am no longer bound by money. And so you could say, this is where I developed my work drive from, that I studied hard and I worked hard. And by the end of the decade, money was no longer a concern for me. I did what I wanted, when I wanted, wherever I wanted. Money didn't limit me. And you know what the funny thing is? When you have money, you always seem to have friends, all kinds of friends. But you always have in the back of your mind, do your friends like you for you or do they like you for the good times? And this was my life by the end of the 1990s, working for the corporate world, nine to five, Monday to Friday, 
and then partying hard like the world was about to end from Friday through to Sunday. Well, we need to take a short break now, but when we come back, I'll continue my September 11 story. We'll be right back after this with The Faith Experiment. The Faith Experiment is made possible because of people like you. If you enjoy what we are doing, please consider supporting us by making a donation on our website at faithfm.com.au slash donate. Come, you 
Jesus, Lord of our shame, Lord of our sinful hearts. He is our great Redeemer. Sing to Jesus, honor His name. Listening to the Faith Experiment with Robbie Bergen, right across Australia, right here on Faith FM. Welcome back to Faith FM. I'm Robbie Bergen, and this is episode one of the Faith Experiment. And I'm taking you back to my personal ground zero, the impact that September 11, 2001, had on my life. There were three events that followed very closely, one after another, that led to a cosmic shift in my life and the way that I lived my life, and it ultimately led me to where I am today. But let me first set the context. So it's New Year's Eve, 1999. I had literally just gotten back from a backpacking trip around Europe. And it was a strange atmosphere. It was partly euphoric. I mean, this was big. It was a once-in-a-lifetime event. Not just the change of a decade. It was the turn of a century and the turn of a millennium. But at the same time, there was this sense of fear, fear of the unknown. You know, people were taking money out of the ATMs. They had stockpiled food and water and batteries. Some people had left the cities in case the dreaded Y2K bug struck at midnight. It was a really strange time. A Senate panel describes Y2K, the year 2000 computer bug, as a worldwide crisis and one of the most serious and potentially devastating events this nation has ever encountered. We started planning in 1996. We went Steve Barlow is chief operating officer at Richmond-based Mechanics Bank. 170-page project plan, that written test plans. Spurred by federal regulations and good business sense, banks have been working on the Y2K bug for years. The federal government is already printing an additional $50 billion to cover banks. In anticipation, people will withdraw extra cash before the new year. And they're conducting a public awareness campaign out of concern panic could take hold. But, as you all know, the event passed. No disaster. But the whole year 2000 was strange for me. You see, even though I had accomplished so much, and as many would say I was living the dream, I began to sense that something wasn't right with my life. My picture of life. Things began to feel empty. You see, back in year nine, my English teacher had us work on a class project where we needed to create a list of 
life goals and put together a plan on how we would achieve them, which I did. You know, I still remember I wanted my driver's license at 17. I wanted to own my first car at 17. I wanted to be earning $20,000 by the time I was 20 years old. That was a, a lot of money back then. And I wanted to have a house by 21. I wanted to be married at 25, have two kids by 30 and retired at 35. And at the ripe old age of 22, I was on track to retire at 35. But something was missing. It seemed the harder I worked, the more contracts I won, the more things that I bought, the more places that I traveled, the more clubs that I visited, the more and more evident it was that something wasn't right. It was hard to put my finger on it. It was like an, an unsettled feeling, like something was right there, but it was missing. I eventually put it down to it's the universe telling me it's time to settle down and get serious with my relationship or something. And so by the end of 2000, I was engaged. As the year 2000 started, it seemed like I'd solved another problem. After all, that's what I do. I'm a problem solver. And this inner inkling, a splinter in my mind, or was it my heart? I thought I'd solved it by bringing somebody else into my life. You know, I, th I think I should probably put a footnote here for anyone who's listening who's single. No matter how bad your life is or how you feel, bringing somebody else into it in terms of a relationship will very rarely solve your problems. Just some free advice based on my own life experiments. So, event number one. It's mid-2001. I'm a programmer, a problem solver. I'm engaged. I'm living the dream. It's Friday night. I'm out with my mates in a nightclub in Brisbane. We've been there for a few hours. And if you've ever been in a dark room with a hundred strangers dancing, you know it gets very hot. And I've had a few drinks, nothing over the top, but I'm feeling good. And so I head to the men's room to splash some cold water on my face to try and cool down. I get to the sink. It's dark with purple lights. There's a dim sound of thumping bass in the background. I bend over to splash water into my face and instantly there's relief to the heat. And as I slowly stand back up and I look into the mirror, I immediately see something standing behind me, a dark, shadowy figure looking over my shoulder with piercing eyes. I turned around to face off with a stranger, and when I did, there was nothing and nobody there. I swing back around to look into the mirror, and there it was again, looking there right back at me. So immediately I turn back around, and it's gone again. You know, I don't remember hearing any words, but there was like a sensation or an impression. Something like I was a captive or a slave to this thing. It's hard to put it into words, but something like the feeling of you can run, but you can't hide. You're mine. Whatever it was, I tell you what, I was out of that men's room and out of that club as fast as I could possibly run. 
Have you, have you ever had an encounter like this with something that it, it defies reason, it defies logic, it's something, dare I say, supernatural or metaphysical? You know, I'd love to hear your stories. You can text me on 04888-45311 or you can email me at robbie at faithfm.com.au. Now, at this point in my life, I considered myself an atheist. I was not religious. I saw religion as a control mechanism for the weak-minded masses. After all, just about every conflict on earth had some connection to religion. In fact, there were two things that I hated with passion. I hated religion and I hated politics. My view of the world was like that of many young professionals who had been enlightened by the sciences and the human accomplishments of the technology revolution we were all living through. I embraced the Darwinian view of the origin of species and celebrated the collaborative human advances in technology. And I believe that like the inevitable improvements of the next version of software or hardware, so too with humanity, with time, would improve upon itself. So, with this encounter in the nightclub, I was well and truly caught off guard. I didn't even believe in a metaphysical world. So, my response to this was to stop drinking. I thought that must be the explanation. I must have had more than I thought. And I was seeing things. And so just like that, I stopped drinking. For the first time since I was of age to drink, I stopped. My friends couldn't believe it or understand it for that matter. But I stopped. So a few months go by. It's August 2001. And I haven't had a drink since that night. And a good mate calls me and says, mate, we're going out. Do you want to join us? And I tell him, yeah, 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 I'll I'll come. But I'm not going to drink. But here's what I'll do. I'll be the designated driver for the night. And so with that, we hit the town. Now, we go through the regular routine of the same clubs and the same bars. And at about 3 a.m. in the morning, we're sitting at the front of a fast food joint, having our early morning munchie session. And I'm surrounded by drunk mates. Now remember, I'm the sober one here, I'm the driver. And for the first time, it sort of hit me just how ridiculous being drunk actually looked. Slurred speech, incoherent humour, random fits of rage and, and the inability to make any sort of rational decision. And I remember thinking to myself, Why do we do this? Why do we spend so much money every single week on alcohol and clubbing and bars and all these these outs? What are we trying to escape here? What are we trying to find? The frailty of humanity and the insignificance of our behavior just became so very apparent at that moment. Well... By about four in the morning, everyone was in my car, passed out, and I was driving them south along the Pacific Motorway. And this leads us to event number two. As I was heading south, out of nowhere, a lightning and thunderstorm hit, but there was no rain, 
just an incredible display of lightning. Starting on the western horizon, the lightning would work its way right across the dome of the sky, splintering its way eastward towards Moreton Bay. It was the most incredible lightning show I've ever seen to this day. It was so incredible that at about 4.30 in the morning, with a car full of passed out mates, I pull the car over and get off the motorway and park the car in the middle of a field. I get out of the car, it's still running, the headlights are shining into this field. And there I stood with my eyes fixed upward, just taking in the grandeur of the scene. You know that smell of negative ions and the feeling of static electricity causing the hair on your arms and the back of your neck to stand on end. It was an incredible moment. And then it happened, right there in the middle of the field. I was paralyzed. As I stood there looking up, I couldn't move a muscle. And out of nowhere, the thought came to me that if there is an end to this world, this is how it would start. Now, I remember being shocked to even having this kind of thought as this wasn't something I ever thought about or even cared about. But here was the thought. And before I could really process what I was thinking, the next thought came. This time, if the world ends and there is a God, then you're lost. Now, if that wasn't shocking enough to be thinking along these lines when I didn't even believe in God, then I certainly wasn't prepared for what came next. While still standing there, gazing up at the sky, someone or something triggered a scene-by-scene playback of my life, starting with my childhood and passing all the way through the years until the very moment I was standing there in that field. But each scene that passed before me was of me committing transgressions of various descriptions. I saw myself in primary school sneaking into my mother's room and stealing money out of her purse to spend at the shops. I saw myself lying to people. I saw myself fighting, misleading and lusting. It was like someone had filmed me every day of my life and decided to rewind it and press play. I was stunned. See, I'd always seen myself as a good person, someone who was a good community citizen, someone who paid their taxes and voted and obeyed the civil laws. And yet here I was, confronted with my own memories condemning me. And just as quickly as it all started, it was over. I could move, I could turn around and look back at the headlights of my running car, only to be startled at that exact second as one of my passed out mates had awoken and started honking the horn. In the space of about two months, these two very different, very strange events occurred. But I couldn't grasp it. I could sense there was some connection, but what was it? These thoughts, these feelings, they brought back that, that splinter in my mind. Something wasn't right. 
It's like I could reach out to the problem, but when I grabbed it, it was like ropes of sand and I was unable to obtain it, unable to solve it, unable to shake it. And then, about two weeks later, it happened. We understand that a plane has crashed into the World Trade Center. We don't know anything more than that. We don't know if it was a commercial aircraft. We don't know if it was a private aircraft. Another one just hit the building. Wow. I literally, I was waiting at the table and I literally saw a, it seemed to be like a small plane. American 11, are you trying to call? Nobody moves. Everything was okay. It's 8.54 right now. Stuart, can you tell me when this happened exactly? I would have to say about 10 minutes ago. I heard first an explosion. Unconfirmed reports that a plane has crashed into one of the towers there. We are efforting more information on this subject. And all of a sudden, stuff just started falling, like bricks and paper and everything. We can't see a second plane in the picture. There we see the explosion. Probably four to eight floors. Uh, I don't know which tower it is. September 11, 2001. Began as any other normal day. But no one could predict what lay ahead for America, or for that matter, the rest of the world. Four planes, three buildings, and about 3,000 deaths. Now, whatever your views are on 911, it has changed the way the world works. Well, we need to take a short break. But when we come back, I will continue with my September 11 story. We'll be right back after this with The Faith Experiment. If you have enjoyed this episode of The Faith Experiment, please help us get the word out by sharing our podcast with your friends and family. And don't forget to like us on Facebook. Take me by the hand and you love me 
void You loved me and I should have realized I had no reasons to be frightened Oh, I am ready for the storm Yes, sir, ready I am ready for the storm Yes, sir, ready I am ready for the storm Yes, sir, ready I am ready for the storm I'm ready for the storm This is The Faith Experiment with Robbie Bergen, right here on Faith FM. Welcome back to The Faith Experiment. I'm your host, Robbie Bergen, and this is episode number one of The Faith Experiment, Ground Zero. And I'm taking you back on my personal Ground Zero and the impact that September 11, 2001 had on my life. I told you before the break that there were three events that followed one another that led to a cosmic shift in my life and has led me to where I am today. The first, that encounter with that shadowy figure in the nightclub, and then the second event was that panoramic flashback of my moral transgressions in the field beside the M1 motorway. And then, the third and final event was on the morning of September 12th, Brisbane local time, that is. This was when I first heard about what had happened in New York City. The day started like any other for me. I got up, I turned the TV on, I boiled the jug and was ironing my shirt. When I saw on the news this incredible footage of planes flying into the World Trade Towers in New York City. It's 8.52 here in New York. I'm Brian Gumbel. We understand that there has been a plane crash on the uh, southern tip of Manhattan. You're looking at the uh, World Trade Center. We understand that a plane has crashed into the world and i remember thinking to myself man that's some amazing special effects i wonder what movie that's from you see there was a real obsession with hollywood around the year 2000 to create movies depicting the end of the world movies like the end of days or independence day men in black deep impact they're all your typical sort of the world's about to end but don't worry someone will always come and save the day uh kind of type of movies You know, everyone has a story of how they came to learn of the events of that morning. I'd love to hear from you where you were when you heard the news about what happened on September 11, 2001. Send me a short sentence on 0488-45311 or email me at robbie at faithfm.com.au. Now, as I changed each channel on the TV... The story was the same. The pictures were the same. The captions, the same. America under attack. Our coverage of America under attack continues here on CNN. Under attack by who? How? How does the most powerful nation on the planet become under attack? I mean, the Americans have the CIA, the FBI. They have Navy SEALs. They have Delta Force. They have Special Forces. I mean, they even have NASA. How is America under attack and then before i could process any of the answers to these questions i was hit with a sinking feeling that kind of feeling that feels like something just went terribly wrong 
like when your knees turn to jelly or your stomach won't stop churning. I had a flashback to that night just a few weeks earlier in the field with that thought, if there is an end to the world, I'm lost. And then that sense of overwhelming guilt from my personal movie highlight reel, which I saw in my mind's eye. And then next, it was like I was being dragged back to that nightclub and placed back into the presence of a dark, shadowy figure with piercing eyes and again reliving that feeling of oppression and of captivity and entrapment. Was this it now? Was this the beginning of the end? Were those two previous encounters just some kind of premonition of all of this, of September 11? I tried to compose myself and, and bury these thoughts and feelings and I made my way to the garage and backed the car out of the driveway and started heading to work. Now in the car I always listened to CDs, but today I felt compelled to put the radio on something I never did when I was driving. And as you know, or probably can tell, the only thing that was on the radio that morning were the events of September 11. And on that 40-minute drive to the office, I was like almost everyone was. I was fixated on what was happening. See, in those initial hours, the word came that this was some kind of terrorist attack by Afghanistan, or maybe it was Iraq or Iran. Whoever it was... It was clear the world was on a trajectory for war. The first strike against terrorism as a missile barrage lands on Afghanistan. We will not falter. As I got up to the eighth fail. floor of the building, this was tech services floor, no one was working. Everyone was sitting around computers watching dial-up speed video clips from CNN and other American news websites. It was clear that something had just changed in the world. Everyone had a story. Everyone had a theory. This meant something, but what? After a few hours of the office being obsessed with the news coming out of the US, we all moved back to our own desks and attempted to get back to work. But it seemed like just as you did, someone in the office received more details and off we were again. Next, there was a a new story coming out that Australian cities might have been on the target list. With each new detail came another distraction, and this went on all day long. I can remember as I was sitting there at my desk, trying to work, trying to solve problems, trying to code, just not being able to shake the feeling that this was somehow connected to that scene in the field just a few nights before. And somehow connected to that figure in that nightclub a few weeks before. What did this all mean? What was happening? It was right about then, as I was pondering these thoughts, that one of my workmates, Chris, stuck his head over the cubicle wall and said, Mate, this was all predicted. Now, Chris was a staunch atheist. I mean, I didn't believe in God. But Chris's mission was to destroy all believers in God. I mean, he was a serious atheist. And now for him to claim that this was somehow predicted, 
was quite out of character, to say the least. But that notion, that notion that it was all predicted in the context of what had taken place in the field and in the in the nightclub for me, could it be possible that there was some kind of prediction? But my response to Chris was a casual, yeah, right, mate. And he comes back with, yeah, 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 yeah. Check this out. Nostradamus predicted 911. And then he gives me some cryptic statement written by Nostradamus hundreds of years before about stars falling at 45 degrees and destruction following or something to that effect. My response to him was, how's that a prediction of these attacks? And with an almost sort of cynical voice, he responds, well, the planes that hit the towers were carrying United Airlines logos, which represents the United States, whose flag has stars on it. So the planes are symbols of stars and they're falling and, and 45 degrees is the approximate latitude of New York City. And so don't you get it? These American planes are falling at 45 degrees in New York City and destruction will follow. See, Nostradamus predicted it. And then he burst out into laughing and went back to his cubicle. It was supposed to be a joke. It was supposed to be funny. It was supposed to be something to show the futility of humanity trying to grasp at knowing the future. That was Chris's purpose. But little did he know that this thought, that predictions might exist, that they might explain the moment or help make sense of this moment, this set me up for a series of events that was about to shake the very foundation of my world. Right there, right in front of that computer, right there in that cubicle, right there on that floor of that building in Brisbane City, I opened up my browser and entered the words, 9-11 and prophecy. And with that, the entire course of my future would be changed. What came up among those search results was a statement from a book written more than a 100 years before, which claimed that there was a connection between the events of tall buildings catching fire and collapsing in New York City and the prophecies of an ancient Hebrew scroll called the Book of Daniel. On one occasion when in New York City, I was in the night season called upon to behold buildings rising story after story toward heaven. These buildings were warranted to be fireproof, and they were erected to glorify their owners and builders. Higher and still higher these buildings rose. The scene that next passed before me was an alarm of fire. Men looked at the lofty and supposedly fireproof buildings and said, They are perfectly safe. But these buildings were consumed as if made of pitch. The fire engines could do nothing to stay the destruction. The firemen were unable to operate the engines. The world is stirred with the spirit of war. The prophecy of the 11th chapter of Daniel has nearly reached its complete fulfillment. Soon the scenes of trouble spoken of and the prophecies will take place. As I read this, I was intrigued. I was confused and amazed. But what was this ancient scroll of Daniel? After a bit of searching online, I discovered that this was actually a book of the Bible. And then, after a bit more searching, I found an online Bible and got access to this book of Daniel. But I don't know if you've ever read the book of Daniel. But for me, when I read it there on my 
computer screen. I read a book that was full of symbols and numbers and stories that made no sense at all. But there was something there, something gripped me, something hooked me. And this caused me to search now for the meaning of the book of Daniel. You see, as a programmer, as a professional problem solver, I can normally sense when there's some kind of problem to be solved or there's some kind of code or some kind of message. And I felt that with this book of Daniel, that there was some problem here or some kind of cryptic message. But I had no idea where to start to try and figure out its meaning. I mean, I didn't even speak Hebrew. But somehow, I felt compelled that this was all connected to that night in the field, to that night in the club, to this event of September 11. It was like some unseen force was guiding me, prompting me, leading me on a quest for discovery. And now, these different events over the past few weeks all coincided and collided on September 11, 2001. This was my own personal ground zero. I didn't know it then, but everything I knew was about to be shaken to its core. Next time on The Faith Experiment, I will take you on the journey through the aftermath of 911 in my own life as I share with you my own faith experiment. Now, at the end of each episode of The Faith Experiment, I will be sharing some of your comments, questions, and feedbacks during a time I'm calling The Inbox. So, Text me your feedback, your questions, what you like, what you don't like to 0488-45311 or email me at robbie at faithfm.com.au and you might just get mentioned on air. So to get you thinking, my question for you today is based on this episode, did 911 impact your life? If so, how? You can text it through to me or email it to me. I would love to hear and read your comments. Well, that's all we have time for today. I'll catch you next week at the same time here on Faith FM for the next episode of The Faith Experiment, where we will not only look at the aftermath of 911, but the aftermath of 911 in terms of my experiment with faith. I'll see you then. You have been listening to The Faith Experiment with Robbie Bergen, right across Australia, right here on Faith FM. Connect with us via text message on 0488 453811. That's 0488 453811. Or send an email to robbie at faithfm.com.au and let us know what you thought of this episode. If you have enjoyed this episode of The Faith Experiment, please help us get the word out by sharing our podcast with your friends and family. And don't forget to like us on Facebook.